Today we are continuing in our Advent series. This is week three of four in which we've been considering what it means that Jesus is the Christ. We've been looking at him as our Christ from different angles each week. First, we considered him as our only suitable Christ. Church, Jesus alone can save sinners like you and me. Last week, we considered from the scriptures what it means that Jesus is the all-sufficient Christ, meaning he is adequate in every way to be our Christ and to remain our Christ. Church, Jesus has reconciled us to our God. And today we're going to be considering what it means that Jesus is the compassionate Christ. Our base text is going to be Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. Turn there with me in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can use the blue pew Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. It's going to be on page 615. And if you don't own a Bible, please, on behalf of Redeemer Baptist Church, take that Bible home with you. We would love to give that to you as a gift this holiday season. Jesus is the compassionate Christ. Before we read Isaiah, I would like to begin our time this morning with a section from our statement of faith here at RBC, of the way of salvation. It says this, we believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon him our nature, yet without sin. Honored the divine law by his personal obedience and by his death made a full atonement for our sins that having risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven and uniting in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. We've discussed suitability. We've discussed all sufficiency. But we also rightly believe and uphold it is just as important to recognize, to believe, and to trust that our Christ is compassionate. We affirm and proclaim together the truth that Jesus Christ is compassionate because Jesus is God. And God has revealed himself to be the Lord. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Merciful and gracious. That's compassionate language. Compassion is mercy and grace in action. It is God's compassion for his creation, for mankind, his image bearers, that has driven our holy God to do the unthinkable, to condescend from his throne into his creation that he loves in order to redeem us at great cost to himself. See John 3.16 and 17, you know these verses. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Our God is the compassionate God. And by clear extension, our God as he is incarnate, Jesus, is the compassionate Christ. But let's play devil's advocate. Let's try to take compassion out of the equation as if God was not compassionate because I want us to see just how important it is for us to hold fast to the testimony of Scripture that he is compassionate. And these may actually even be lies you are tempted to believe. So Lord willing, this will expose them and we can see the true reality of Christ's compassion together. So think about this. For starters, if God was not compassionate, he would have no desire nor any reason to care about his creation. He wouldn't care about you. He wouldn't care about me. And he wouldn't care one bit about any other person in the rest of the world. He wouldn't care about our struggles internally. He wouldn't care about our struggles externally. It doesn't matter because he doesn't care. People suffering, people dying, no sympathy, nor empathy, nor consideration. Because it would make no difference to him. God would therefore be the coldest being in all of existence. Human beings would have more compassion than God. It would be one big sick joke that creation would have just been something God started and just let it run fast and free on its own. He would be distant And if hell can be defined in any way as being separated from God, then we would be living in hell on earth and would literally be going to eternal hell in a handbasket. We'd be separated from God from the moment that he makes us into all eternity. Because God himself was not compassionate. And he definitely didn't have compassion for us. Let's say this another way. Let's say God wouldn't distance himself from creation. Let's say he would still be imminent to his creation, but he was still compassionless. This would mean that God would see all the hardship, all the turmoil, all the pain and the suffering that we go through as a result of our sin within us and the sin in a fallen world. And although he'd be right there with us, he would not act to relieve us or redeem us in any way. Why would he? One more example. Truthfully, you can't separate Christ's compassion from his suitability or his all-sufficiency because his compassion in one way or another drives those things. But if we tried, let's say we tried, if we hypothetically claimed that God was not compassionate but was still suitable and all-sufficient to save, this means that our God would have every resource and ability possible to redeem us from our eternal damnation, our separation from him under his wrath for sin, but despite being able, being fit, being the only one who could redeem us, his lack of compassion on us alone would be enough to prevent him from doing anything. From incarnating, 
from doing the work that Jesus Christ came to do, there would be no reason for him to. There would therefore be a God who can save, but after we've sinned against him so much, he wouldn't want to because he doesn't have to. You see, if God was without compassion, church, we would all be lost and hopeless, helpless before him. But church, this is not our God. None of these things are true. God is compassionate. And not only has he proclaimed himself to be compassionate, he has proven himself to be infinitely and gloriously compassionate, so much so that Paul writes in Ephesians 3.19 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We can't fully comprehend how much God has loved us in Christ Jesus. But what we can comprehend is that God has shown his ultimate expression of compassion by sending us the Lord Jesus, who is our Christ. He's come to us. Jesus, our compassionate Christ, he took on human flesh, made like us in every way, and yet has poured himself out for us to be reconciled back to our God. In him lies our hope for salvation, that our God really is compassionate, and he pours out his compassion on all those who repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect obedience to God when we never could, who died in our place as sinners, who rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and has now risen to his rightful throne in heaven. Church, Jesus alone can save us, and his desire is to do so because he is compassionate. Do you believe that Jesus is compassionate? Do you believe that he desired to save you? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus' compassion is for you? Not just that he's compassionate, but that his compassion is for you. Friend, if you're here this morning and you, you don't know this kind of compassion, I would strongly encourage you to look at Jesus and recognize and believe his compassion for you because it is for you. Turn to him in faith. It matters that Christ is compassionate. In fact, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. So let's read this text together this morning. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. 
Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like last week, I want to be very practical as we consider Christ's compassion. And I hope that you'll see, even from a text like Isaiah 55, that Jesus is the compassionate Christ. To that end, this morning I've got three points to consider from our text, and I will include other related passages of Scripture as we go on the screen. So let's begin. The first is this. Christ's compassion is full, it's free, and it's satisfying. Christ's compassion is full, it is free, and it is satisfying. Jesus' compassion is full because he is our incarnate God. The infinite and eternal God who was, who is, who is to come. Try to measure this. This is why this is important. Try to measure this. God who is both outside of all his creation including time and space. He's transcendent from his creation, yet he is everywhere within his creation at once, sustaining it. He is imminent. This God is compassion. God is immeasurable. The one about whose thoughts alone, Job says in Job 11, verse 7 through 9, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God is uncontainable. The one whom Solomon speaks of in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. God is great. Speaking of his size, the one whom the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 135, verse 5 through 6. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. We need to think big, church. We serve a big God, one who is Sovereign, 
Not one who is in any way weak or driven by emotion like cultural Christianity might try to persuade us. Not one who is haphazard and is working or, or trying to play catch up within all of our mess. Not one who wants to accomplish work amongst us but doesn't have the power to do so. No, we serve a big God, a sovereign God who rules and reigns, who wills and who works in accordance with, and listen, out of his divine character at all times. He does whatever he pleases. And he does so because he is God and praise God that he is good. And it is this God, our God, as great and glorious as he is, who has revealed himself to be compassionate. This means his compassion is immeasurable. His compassion is unfathomable. We cannot comprehend how vast his compassion is any sooner than we could comprehend the fullness of our infinite God in our finite minds. But it is exactly from his fullness that he extends his compassion. And in his compassion, our eternal God, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, decreed that the Son of God, the second person of this glorious trinity, would become a man, that he might redeem us, sinners. Church, Philippians 2 Christ's condescension was not a little step. If our God is this big, that step must be an infinite step. For Christ to be God, yet not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, a human being made from dust? If our God really is so big, just how far was that step for him to take? But he did it that the world might be saved through him. Hear God's word, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let me clarify this further with Colossians 1, 19 and 2, 9. For in Christ, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That big God dwells bodily, fully in Jesus. Church, here's the point. God, out of his compassion, sent his only son. God in his fullness dwelt bodily. In Jesus, the man. This means the fullness of God's compassion can be seen in his sending of the Son and his becoming a man like us. God's compassion was embodied in Jesus and Jesus lived his life with this compassion perfectly. Praise be to God. And we know from his life and his teaching, church, that Jesus' compassion is free for anyone because we know that God's compassion is free for anyone and his, his call is to everyone. Back to our text, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus himself echoes these words in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You find rest in Jesus, church. Christ has fully revealed that his compassion is full. His compassion is free for anyone who would come to him. And listen to the words of John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Never is a long time. Notice that as his compassion is full and as it is free, whoever would come, his compassion will satisfy. His compassion means little to nothing to us if we needed more and more and more, but because it is full, it will satisfy all who come. And to be clear, his compassion satisfies because it reconciles us back to our God. In Christ, we no longer bear the weight nor the penalty of our sin. God has dealt fully and finally with our sin in Christ. And now Christ is in us and he's brought us back to God. God is the most satisfying. And we were created to be in relationship with him. So in Christ, we get God. We get God. And let me ask you, does that bore you? Does that come as a letdown for you? As if you were to say, I get God, that's it? Friend, if that's your response, you obviously don't know, nor can you perceive just how glorious, just how satisfying our God is. And to be in relationship with him is what we long for as Christians. We long to be in the presence of our God, and we can now in Christ, and we will be with him for eternity. We long for that day. It is all satisfying now and will be for eternity. Christian, this should bring you such joy, and I pray it does. Because Christ's compassion for you is immeasurable. It's as immeasurable as God is. When the scriptures speak to the great love with which Christ loved us, it's this kind of love, this kind of compassion. Set this truth into your heart, Christian, that it might strengthen your trust in your God who is compassionate and he's poured that compassion out on you. Point number two this morning. Christ's compassion grounds our assurance and drives our obedience. Christ's compassion grounds our assurance and drives our obedience. You can see that in verse 3, 6. I'm seeing this in verses 3, Five, six through seven. This comes on the tail end of our last point. If all of that is true, if Christ's compassion is full, if it's free, if it's satisfying, if it's full, being God's compassion, free for all who come, then it alone can satisfy. 
our souls. And all of that's true, then it's Christ's compassion on us that itself is the grounds of our assurance as Christians. I'll clarify this with 1 John 4, verse 16, 17, and 19. John writes this. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence, hear the assurance, for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And what was his ultimate expression of love, his compassion? It was when Christ would lay down his life for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, dying in our place as sinners, though he was perfect, cursed by God in our place, judged under the full wrath of God on the cross in our place. It was out of compassion that Christ lived his life in righteousness, knowing what was to come. It was out of compassion that he went to the cross where he would lay down his life, not only to die a horrific death of agony physically, but where he would also receive the full wrath of God in our place. It was out of compassion that God the Father was pleased to crush his only beloved son, forsaking his son in this moment that we might be reconciled to God for eternity in a way that we just can't understand. This, our triune God was able to exact the judgment we deserved on Christ. Christ would be able to satisfy the Father's wrath and pay our sin in full on our behalf. God doing all of these things himself. Himself. Out of his great compassion for the world he created and he entered into it to save. Let me say it this way. It is only Jesus who can bring us back to God. And by faith in him, his compassion is poured out on us. Look at Isaiah 55. Come to me that your soul may live. And at that point, we can have assurance then that Jesus will bring us back to God. He'll reconcile us to God, which means if you base being right with God on anything else, you can have no assurance that it'll happen. And because it's so common of a misconception nowadays that if you're good enough or at least more good than you are bad, you'll go to heaven. Let me be clear. The Bible teaches that good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people go to heaven. And the scriptures have made it abundantly clear that only one person in the entire history of mankind has ever been perfect. In fact, the scriptures have made it abundantly clear that not one person in all of mankind besides the one who is perfect has ever been good. No one is good. No, not 
one. So don't bank on your goodness. Before a holy God as our standard, we're not good at all. As good as we might think we are, we're not good at all. Don't trust your goodness. If you're not in Christ this morning, don't trust your goodness. If you are in Christ this morning, don't trust your goodness. Your goodness is no grounds for assurance at all. Brother, sister, in Christ, if you feel tempted to do that, like your good works somehow make God love you more or less, you've got to put that to death with the truth that Christ is compassionate and he poured his compassion out on us when we were dead in our sins. We had nothing good in us at all. That's when he poured it out on us. He showed us the fullness of his compassion then. So don't believe right now it's any different. I would encourage you, repent of whatever sin it is that you're walking in, but at that point, remember Christ's compassion on you because it is there that you have grounds for assurance. It is not in any overcoming of sin, any good works that you have. There's no assurance there. You only have assurance in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, not your good work for him, what he's done for you. Also, you might be tempted to find assurance in how much you love God. Not just how much you do for him, but how much you love him. But again, that's imperfect. It's not good. We on this side of eternity cannot love God perfectly as we ought. Our love for him will never be good enough. But again, hear me, we're trying to find assurance in something we do on our end. And it's not designed to be that way. Our assurance is found fully on God's end. As the text this morning says, he makes an everlasting covenant with us. And he keeps the eternal covenant in Christ. We must believe and trust in how much Christ loves us and how much he's done for us. Not in any way how much we might love him or can do for him. And because it is Christ's compassion for us that grounds our assurance, we can regularly run back to him in time of need. So hear this, Christ's compassion helps us suffer well. When we suffer we don't look down at what we're, what we're going through in our circumstances. We look up to Christ. We look to Christ when we suffer. We remember his compassion for us is full. It's unchanging. And let that be the fuel that helps you suffer through whatever hardship it is that you are facing. We can suffer loss of property, loss of friends, loss of family, loss of health, loss of life itself, knowing that Christ's compassion, as great as it is, is for us. It is full, it is free, and it is satisfying. Christ's compassion also protects us as we battle temptations to sin from within ourselves and outside ourselves. Because when the Son of God took on flesh, he took on our weakness. Let that be an encouragement for you. That Jesus became as we are. He was made like us in every way. And because of this, Jesus knows the struggle that you face personally. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one, hear this, 
who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let it be the foundation of our assurance. Let it be an encouragement to us as we fight temptation. Jesus knows the daily battle of putting his flesh to death and trusting God. He knows what it's like to be tempted. In fact, to the fullest degree, and thanks be to God, he knows perfectly what it's like to overcome those temptations. How much more can he help us in ours? So we ought to depend on him in our struggle. Remember his compassion. But knowing his compassion for us is not only the grounds of our assurance, as it should be. It should also be what drives our obedience. 1 John 4, 19 again. We love because he first loved us. A few verses later, 1 John 5, 3, what does he say? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, we've studied 1 John together recently here at Redeemer. So we know the interconnectedness of love and obedience to God's commands. But the point that I want to make clear that I pray helps you think rightly about obedience to God is that we ought not obey first out of duty because we have to, but out of love because we want to. I'm not saying if you don't want to obey, you don't have to. Even if you don't want to obey Jesus, he still demands that you obey, even if, in that sense, it's out of duty. What I am saying is that Christ's compassion for you should drive your obedience to him. As you look at how much he's poured out his compassion for you, on you, you should want to do nothing else but obey him. When you're tempted to disobey, remember his compassion and let it drive you to obedience. Does this describe your present obedience to Christ? Do you feel like you obey out of duty or do you feel like you obey out of love as a response to his compassion? It's important to consider this. If we obey with Christ's compassion, driving us, we will not grow weary in obedience. Though it might be difficult at times. His commands to us will not be burdensome for us because we love him. But hear me, if duty drives us, if we just do it because we have to, we will quit when obedience gets hard. We will stop obeying when obedience rubs us the wrong way or puts us in uncomfortable positions. When you're tempted to begrudge God's commands, tempted to consider them as too much, as a duty, as burdensome, remember just how much it cost Christ to pour his compassion out on you at the cross for the forgiveness of all your sins, for you to be reconciled to God and let this drive you to say, Jesus loves me so much. I want to obey him because I love him. One last thing I'll say to that point. You have your assurance there. 
It drives your obedience. But to be clear, again, Christ's compassion demands your obedience. It demands it. You can't come to Christ on your own terms and expect to receive the benefits of compassion that he purchased with his life on the cross while at the same time forsaking the necessity of obedience to him in all things. To put it short, you can't expect to enjoy his compassion if you aren't submitted to him. It cost him his life and it beckons that you surrender yours too. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, meaning you can't continue to walk in wickedness or unrighteousness. You must forsake your way. You have to leave those thoughts behind, those ways behind, the way you used to leave, live behind and come to Jesus if you will come that he might have compassion on you. And it's a promise that he will when you come. Third point this morning. Christ's compassion serves his church and extends to the world. Christ's compassion serves his church and extends to the world. It is, after all, with his church, with the Israel of God, as Paul would call us in Romans 9 through 11, that God has made his everlasting covenant. His church, the people whom he has called to come, verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah, 1 through 2 of Isaiah 55, the people who have come and he's given them life, verse 3, the people who have forsaken their ways with the world and have turned to the Lord while he is near, verses 6 and 7. It is with his church that he's made this everlasting covenant in verse 3, in a larger sense, making us his witnesses, verse 4, that the nations might come to us that we might be glorified by him, verse 7, washed In the blood of our Christ, we, Christ's church, have received God's compassion. Our sins have been abundantly pardoned, as the text says. The New Testament is clear about the relationship that Christ shares with his church. He's called the head of his church. The church is called the bride of Christ. So let's see it in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30, for example. Paul is giving instruction on how a husband should love his wife. And he compares this love to Christ's love for his church. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Christ nourishes and cherishes his church Now, if we're thinking linearly and we want to understand Christ's compassion toward his church in this way, think about it like this. 
Christ's compassion beckons the sinner to come. Come that I might have compassion on you. Come be filled and be satisfied. The sinner hears. Spirit gives him ears to hear, to see. The sinner comes. Christ saves the sinner. Christ's compassion grounds the assurance of this saint, drives the obedience of this saint, to which he commands the saints to love one another, to not neglect gathering together. And at that moment, it is Christ's compassion that brings us together. Not to live alone in the Christian life, but to live in community with the body whom he loves. His compassion draws us together as Christians. It binds us together. It keeps us together. So to be clear, how does Christ's compassion serve his church? A few ways. Christ's compassion serves his church first by gathering his church. Think about it. It is itself an evidence of Christ's compassion for us that he would not leave us to walk alone in this life, but would gather us into bodies to do the Christian life together. See his love in even this church that he did not save you and leave you, but he saved you and brought you into relation with other Christians. He's not left you alone spiritually. He's not left you alone physically here. We have each other. But let's not think for a minute, this is it. As if our numbers are complete for Christ's compassion, being full, free, and being satisfying can and will gather more into his church. And I believe that because of what Jesus himself says. Jesus himself says, Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. It sounds like Isaiah 55. And then the end will come. The Lord must not be done gathering. Because if he was, we have the assurance to know we wouldn't be here. We'd be with him. But we're not. So for now, We hope and we pray to that end that Christ would continue to build his church like he promised he would, that he would pour out his compassion on the lost by the power of his Holy Spirit and bring the dead to life, make citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And as he brings new life, we pray he would bring those saints to us that they might gather with us and encourage us with what Christ has done in them all the more and we to them until the day comes when he comes back. But notice even in this waiting, in our working right now, Christ's compassion still serves us. It gathers us, but Christ's compassion serves his church as an example of how we ought to live within his church. His example is our example. That is we We ought to love one another. And Christ's compassion for us teaches us how to live with compassion 
for one another. We ought to look like our compassionate Christ with one another. There are many passages that speak to the love we ought to share together, but just hear this one. Paul and Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Paul says this, put on then. It's a choice. Put on then. It's active. As God's chosen ones, it's grounded in our assurance that we have in Christ's compassion. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. If he tells us to put them on, that means we don't naturally act this way, do we? We must put it on, and the only way we can put it on is because Christ has first poured his compassion out on us. But notice what happens as a result. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. We're able to bear with one another when it gets tough. After all, church, I don't know if you remember, you and I are both still sinners. We are both still sinners. We shouldn't expect otherwise. The Lord never said it would be easy to love your brothers and sisters, but he commanded us to do it. And we can do it if we put on compassionate hearts grounded in his compassion for us. Notice what else. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's the ground. So you also must forgive. That's the obedience. We can forgive one another when we wrong one another, when we wrong one another. And we don't have to hold or sit in our grudges or frustrations because Christ's compassion is greater than those. Does our compassionate Christ hold our sins against us? By no means. When we repent, he forgives and he forgets. The closer we come together, Redeemer, the more we will sin against one another. But when we do, we must repent, forgive, bear, and notice the next verse, verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we are regularly about putting on compassionate hearts, putting on the love that Christ first loved us with, everything will be bound together in perfect harmony. And thanks be to God. Sinners saved by the compassionate Christ can gather together in perfect harmony. Not because it's easy to do it, but because we made a real choice to love Jesus and love one another. We can't make one without the other. As we actively put on love, despite our difficulties together, we will be in perfect harmony. And it's very important for us to get it right here, within our family, so to speak. If we expect to get it right in the world. Paul makes a connection like this when he lays out the qualifications for eldering. He asks, if a man cannot manage his own household, how... Will he care for God's church? Now, this is a broad connection, admittedly, but a connection nevertheless. How can we, church, expect to love the lost in the world if we don't know how to love one another in the church? The two are connected. If you don't love your brothers and sisters here, whom you've been united to in Christ, 
how can you expect to love someone that is in opposition to you spiritually? Bent against you by their nature. You can't. We need to be about the one so that we can successfully be about the other. And thankfully for us, Christ's compassion serves his church as an example, not only of how we ought to live within his church, but how we ought to live within the world as his church. Christ commands us to love our neighbor, but furthermore, to love our enemies. We see this in Jesus's life as he engaged with this with those in society who, who were deemed weak and worthless, the sick and the psycho, the destitute, the outcast, those despised in society, the prestige and the poor, the honest and the heathen, Jesus did life next to those people. He welcomed them, shared the truth of the kingdom of God with them as he had compassion on them, real compassion, and provided for their needs whatever they might have been. What about us? Do we share our lives with people like that. Not just waving hello, but do we prioritize sharing our life with someone like that? What about the neighbor next door? The coworker down the hall? What about your friends and family? What would it look like if you, look, you lived like Jesus lived with them? You did life with them, never letting the outcast be cast out because you are right there with a compassionate heart ready to meet their needs. Now remember, there's no true compassion from a Christian that either compromises or withholds the truth. Meaning if you never share the gospel with someone, are you really showing Christ's compassion to them? Meaning if, if you never share the truth in love with them about their lifestyle rather than condoning their lifestyle, even passively, are you really showing Christ's compassion? I would say no. And I'd love to share a secret with you. Christ's compassion itself teaches us that you can simultaneously Pour out compassion on someone and not support the life that they choose to live. It's the difference between saying, oh, you're addicted to this substance. That's okay. Jesus loves you. And saying, oh, you're addicted to this substance. Friend, Christ can deliver you from this. Do you want to know how? One side in the name of compassion lets the sin carry on. The other, in the name of compassion, challenges the step of faith. Be the challenger for their soul's sake. And to re represent our Lord who lived that way himself. And not only have we seen him live this way, he commands us to do the same. From the same Christ who lived a life of compassion Challenging compassion comes this command for us to have compassion for our neighbors. Back to Colossians 4, verse 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always, not sometimes, always be gracious, season with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. May it be so that we make time with outsiders 
you got to make it. Make time with outsiders, those who don't share your common faith. And that we make the best use of that time. Notice, speaking graciously, yet salty. Echoing Christ's words that his church is to be the salt of the earth. And that's the way Christ's compassion extends to the world through his church. Lastly, Christ's compassion extends to the world through the witness of his church. Not just how we live, but through our witness. Jesus promised he would build his church, and we trust that promise because as we're sitting here this morning in obedience to Christ's commands, gathering and loving and encouraging one another while he is here working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is out there at the same time working by the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit that emboldens you and I to leave this place and go into the world as we've been commanded by our compassionate Christ. The church does its work of internal ministering when it gathers. But our work doesn't start and end here. Our work continues when we walk out those doors and do life for another six days. We need to be ministering out there with the people out there, loving and serving and sharing the gospel whenever and wherever we make and see the opportunity. We encourage one another with truth every Sunday that some of your neighbors have never heard one time in their entire life. Shouldn't we want them to know the fullness of Christ's compassion, that it's free, and that it's what they've been longing for, what they've wanted, what they've been searching so hard to find. It is what alone will satisfy their greatest need to be reconciled to their compassionate God. But they won't know unless they hear, and they won't hear unless we speak, and we won't speak if we aren't first grounded in the compassionate love of our Christ that it might drive us to open our lips and speak the truth in love. Our compassionate Christ gathers us together and serves us as our example of how we ought to live within his church here at Redeemer, how we ought to live within the world, and how we ought to be a witness to the world around us. It matters, church, that Jesus is the compassionate Christ. Let's pray.